Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Norwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And today, we are talking about the mythos as a religion, part two. In particular, we're talking about how thinking of mythos, sects, and cults as religions can perhaps make them a bit more interesting and textured in your games. But before we get stuck into all that, what's going on? Well, Matt, I understand you're involved with a new Kickstarter project. And not just as a backer for a change. No, I know. I'm actually really being quite quiet on the backing front now that I've got a mortgage. It's quite depressing. <laughs> yeah, I, I was contacted out of the blue probably a month or so ago now. Invited to write for a, say, the Kickstarter coming up, which is for The Idol of Cthulhu. The prop brought to you by the same team that put together the props of Neartholotep Kickstarters. Uh, they've done two of the runs so far. I understand they're about halfway through. And also the Sedefkar Simulacrum model that I put together for Horror on the Orient Express. Very and, cool. So w- what is it precisely you're doing for them? Well, I'm writing up a scenario which at the moment is... The length is yet to be determined because it will be determined by basically how much funding the Kickstarter gets. Um, at the minute we're looking at a 15,000 word one shot which will be a direct sequel to the Call of Cthulhu original short story. So have you any inklings of how you're going to take that in what kind of direction that you oh, can share with us? Yeah, we've already got the, the pitch for the scenario greenlit by Chaosium. Um, so they're they're happy with the structure that I've got in mind, but uh, yeah, without re- really having too many spoilers, um, think of the first few wor- uh, few words of the Call of Cthulhu story, uh-huh. and that what happened to him and the person that put together all the papers. Don't you think there's a couple of other people in that um, in that story that are a bit of loose ends? And the idol itself that's part of the Kickstarter. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Because it's the yeah. HPLHS are also involved, am I right? Yeah, you're very, very right. The idol is effectively Legrasse's idol from the story, complete with uh, weird runes and symbols around the base. And the actual physical prop will have a hole in the bottom, which you'll be able to put a speaker into, which will then be able to play audio files which have been provided by the HPLHS, which will relate to the story, but also can provide you with just some weird, atmospheric and hopefully creepy sound bites in there as well. Are you sure... That it's actually just playing sounds, or is it really a conduit to the dreams of Cthulhu? Well, that's what I'm hoping for, so <laughs> share the madness. <laughs> yeah, I, it sounds like that whole you know, speaker thing is just a pretext there, it's a cover. Yeah. You might want yeah. to edit that bit out, so just so that people don't learn the truth, you know. Yeah. And at the time of recording, we've just received the initial print run of the Blasphemous Tome, but unfortunately, there's a printing error in it. Luckily, we haven't had the whole lot printed, so it's a partial print run. And <laughs> flicking through it, Matt suddenly realised that, oh my God, there's four pages at the end of it that aren't in there. So we're going to get them redone this week. This may mean that they're not going to reach you for Christmas, but hopefully they will. If they don't, then they'll reach you as soon as we can get them to you after that. And we will be shipping them out right until the end of the year anyway. If you are a backer by the end of this month... Uh, you will receive at least one copy of the Blasphemous Tome. Uh, see the website for details of what exactly you'll get. Woohoo! On that note about Patreon, I hear some investigations are afoot. 
If you've been following the press this week, you'll probably have seen there's a, a bit of a confusion about Patreon. They're changing the amount that they charge backers, and th this has led to a bit of disquiet. So we're looking at alternative means whereby people can fund us. We will keep our Patreon structure in place, so if you're already backing us there or, or are happy to do so, you can carry on doing so. But at the same time, you know, for those who are less than happy with Patreon, we will provide alternative we, we just need to establish what will work best at this stage. And now, the Lovecraftian word of the week. And this week, our word is... Blasphemous. It's an adjective. One. Only one definition, eh? I'm getting off lightly this time. Expressing or involving impiousness or gross irreverence towards God, a divine being, or something sacred. A bit like my plush. And considering that the the imprint that we use for the blasphemous tome, uh, our fanzine is blasphemous tomes, and our website is blasphemoustomes.com, why has it taken us so long to get round to this one? Because of your opinion on the title of this segment. Yes, yes, that, that, that's obviously it. <laughs> Well, I, I know I'd been saving this word for a special occasion. I thought initially we'd use it for the 50th episode or the 100th episode, and it didn't really fit in with the themes of either of those. And so I, I've just, just kept it on the, the pile waiting to be uh, deployed. And this time it just seemed like the right word to use. And here it is. So blasphemous. It kind of seems a curious one for Lovecraft, who was an avowed non-believer, to, to use this word blasphemous. But it doesn't have to apply to an irreverence to God, as the definition says. But I think he uses it as such. Yeah, uh, this is something we keep coming back to. I and mean, We did in the last episode, when we talked about Lovecraft's use of the word ineffable, that he uses these words with religious connotations, but uses them in a non-religious way. For example, you know, here, blasphemous seems to apply much more to an affront to common decency or, or the fundamental laws of nature, rather than anything necessarily spiritual or religious. 49 times? It appears in the yeah, fiction. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, indeed. and then another six times is blasphemously or blasphemousness. What a word, blasphemousness. <laughs> I don't think I've seen that used outside of Lovecraft. Hated by spell checkers everywhere. Yeah, it's it's a weird one. Yeah, yeah well, that's Lovecraft. Now we were thinking of uses of the word blasphemous, and where it's cropped up in the news a while back was with Stephen Fry. In mm. Ireland, where he was accused of blasphemy. Well, not just accused of. I mean, they threatened to prosecute him for blasphemy because there are blasphemy laws on the books in Ireland. I seem to remember it came about because he was being interviewed on Irish TV, wasn't it? And said something along the lines of, you know, I don't see why you should worship a god who inflicts cruelty and suffering on the world. I don't think that in itself is a particularly controversial statement in this day and age. I get the impression it was more of a publicity stunt than anything else to try to threaten him with this. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a question that believer or non-believer one could ask. Mm. Yeah, I know. You know, back when I was a Christian, I, it was something I struggled with myself a, a fair bit. And I don't think asking that question is blasphemy in itself. But as I said, I, I think he couched it in slightly more confrontational terms colorful terms, colorful terms yeah. yes yeah. as he is want to 
And now let's have a look at how Lovecraft used the word blasphemous in his writings. From the statement of Randolph Carter. Amorphous shadows seem to lurk in the darker recesses of the weed-choked hollow, and to flit, as in some blasphemous ceremonial procession, past the portals of the mouldering tombs in the hillside. Shadows which could not have been cast by that pallid, peering crescent moon. And from the Whisperer in Darkness. Of course, they might be fraudulent, for others besides myself had read the monstrous and abhorred Necronomicon of the mad Arab Abdul al-Hazred, but had nevertheless made me shiver to recognise certain ideographs which study had taught me to link with the most blood-curdling and blasphemous whispers of things that had had a kind of mad half-existence before the earth and other inner worlds of the solar system were made. And finally, from the book. I felt that those walls and overhanging gables of mildewed brick and fungus plaster and timber, with fishy, eye-like, diamond-paned windows that leered, could hardly desist from advancing and crushing me. Yet I had read only the least fragment of that blasphemous rune before closing the book and bringing it away. And now on to our main topic, the mythos as religion, part two. We spent a little while last episode talking about religion in the abstract, breaking down some of the common elements of world religions, thinking about how they might map onto the mythos. And this time we thought we'd flip it on its head and look at it from inside mythos sects and try to use these tools to try to construct some more interesting approaches to presenting mythos cults and cultists and sects or whatever you want to call them within your Call of Cthulhu game. But before we do that, Paul had a suggestion. This suggestion was that we each talk a little bit about what our own personal experiences with religion are, just to give some context to the preconceptions or the prejudices or the colour that we ourselves are bringing to this discussion. Well, let's kick it off with you, Scott. You mentioned in the intro that that you used to be a Christian. Uh, What's the story there? Were you brought up as Christian and then then, then changed? Or did you find Christianity during your life? Yes, yeah, more the latter. So I was brought up in a sort of semi-secular way. My father was was definitely religious i mean he was brought up as a methodist and he he didn't go to church very often at least not until later in life but he i think he sort of held on to at least the cultural aspects of christianity there and my mother was raised in quite a, a religious environment though a, a changing one in that when she was a very young child she was sent off to a convent and and was largely raised by nuns I don't know precisely why. Maybe it was because, you know, it was the 60s. But my parents didn't raise me with a lot of direct religious influence. We didn't go to church. There was no sort of Bible reading in the house or anything like that. And it it was always sort of background noise. Where were you living at this point? Uh, In Hong Kong, mostly. In Switzerland for part of it. Yeah. But then sometime in my late teens or... I started feeling like something was missing, and I, I felt like that there was a spiritual dimension to life that 
I hadn't actually addressed or explored. And I guess initially because of these these cultural roots, um, I thought that, you know, that, that was going to be expressed through Christianity. And so I did things like join the Christian Union at church, uh, read the Bible fairly regularly, went to church, tried to find some answers or some meaning there. And I did this for, I guess, five years. Up until what sort of age? Uh, early 20s. Okay, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, ultimately, I, I found a lot of powerful stuff in Christianity and yeah, some of that has stayed with me but fundamentally I found that I just couldn't believe and I drifted through a number of other things Um, a number of friends of mine in my 20s were neo-pagans so I got involved with some of that stuff tangentially I never particularly believed it but I attended a lot of Wiccan ceremonies and, uh, and the like dabbled in buddhism but fundamentally i I, i've sort of drifted into i guess what is referred to commonly as as apathetic agnosticism i guess i'm probably more atheistic than agnostic i don't actively disbelieve but at the same time i don't feel any strong sense of belief i i miss that i i miss having sort of some sense of of spiritual purpose or faith but at the same time i don't seem to be constitutionally suited to it and what about yourself matt i know you i I attended your wedding a couple of years ago which was in a church Mm -hmm. but i mean that was because you're religious or just because it was a a significant place to have a wedding it was more keeping up with tradition that's where my parents got married Mm. um I'll preface my uh, oncoming rant with a <laughs> uh, with an apology for any of people out there who do have uh, faith of their own. Good for you, but I don't. I pretty much was brought up in a uh, with my parents being nominally Christian, but I suppose the driving force between a lot of the faith, uh, most of the faith in my family, comes from my grandmother on my dad's side. My parents had always said when I was at school that if I didn't want to do something, I would dig my heels in and push the other way, and that is very much me in general. I will not be forced to do something, and certainly comes that I will not be forced to believe whatever bullshit story you throw down my throat about some guy in Israel 2,000 years ago, which I have no fact that he ever existed. And I remember commenting several times, this Bible could just be a work of fiction. I've got no proof that it exists. So you Mm. felt it was being forced upon you, and you kind of kicked back against that? Very much so, yeah. Um, I, I think just as a counterpoint, I think that there is enough historical and archaeological evidence to suggest that whether or not you accept the spiritual underpinnings of the Bible, that historically there's a lot of stuff in there which you know just plain isn't made up. I mean, it may be you know rephrased in in very allegorical ways, and it may be changed by the fact that it was written a long time after the events that are being described. But in amongst all the tales of, of, of floods and angels and, and so on, there is a fair amount of historical detail, so it's, it's not completely made up. Oh, no, that, that's something I've come to, come to acknowledge later in life, that yes, there is a certain degree of basis of fact for certain items. But as a kid, who's not been exposed to some fairly high-brow discussion on that front, it was, it was just a work of fiction with no physical proof behind it. And I did what I always do. I kick back at that, saying, no, I'll come to make my own decisions and I'll come to my own beliefs. And pretty much push back against pretty much every religion out there, as far as I, as far as I could tell, other than the closest I'll come to is that some discussions I've seen regarding spirituality or meaning of life and existence from some, um, some Masons, some Freemasons. 
that they believe in a grand architect of the universe, that there's enough, at least physical scientific fact for me, to say there must be some kind of intelligent design behind the way the universe has been constructed mm. that could imply that there was an architect, a demiurge, some kind of figure that designed this world. That's about the closest I'll come to religion. Otherwise, I'm pretty much of the opinion it's all deluded farce. Bizarrely, I'd say that actually makes you significantly more religious than me, because I don't see any structural purpose or meaning in the universe anymore. I, I see it as being chaos. It's the closest I'm going to come to a religious debate. So I live with it. <laughs> but, but, uh, but, I mean, I was intrigued, intrigued that you feel there's some, in you know, this, this term intelligent design, that the universe couldn't have come about as it is without some sort of outside force? Potentially, but like I say, I'm yet, to be, I'm yet to be confronted by possible. physical evidence of that being the case. Right. But it's the one theory that I, if any, if I had to choose any of them, that would be the one that I pick. That's the one that appeals to you, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that's something that I've, I've come to sort of feel, that there's an attraction in us to a sense of wonder. Mm. And I get that reading Lovecraft, you get that sense of wonder. We get it in all sorts of places. You know, I get a sense of wonder in Star Wars. I get a sense of wonder in, you know, stories that intrigue us. I think that's part of the appeal. And and to me, you know, as a kid, I think there was a sense of wonder about religion, you know, particularly in some of the, the imagery and some of the hymns, you know, bring me my bow of burning gold and, and all that. You know, it all sounds pretty cool and angels and, and so on. And at school, we had like a religious talk every morning and a hymn and a prayer all Christian Church of England. Yeah, we had to carry hymn books on the way out of assembly. Some mornings there'd be random hymn book checks. And if you didn't have your hymn book, you were in trouble. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. But I think for most of us, it was just something that, that you kind of did. And I don't really recall being religious. I think well, my parents very much called themselves Christian. I think they were brought up in a time when Christianity was very much sort of taught, much more embedded in society and in, in schools. And that was very evident from the way my mum talks about things that, you know, that was sort of embedded in her at a young age. But I didn't really get that. I think I went to Sunday school once, occasionally went to church, maybe a few times a year with my mum. But it's things like remembrance service, weddings, funerals, baptisms, that sort of thing. Yeah, and I'd say your experience is a very common British one, in that religion for you is more cultural than spiritual. And personally, you know, I've, I've say that I'm not religious. I've never really adhered to any religion. Um, you, you've had an interest in mysticism, though, haven't you? Yeah, I'd say so. I mean, I've kind of explored a bit. But I guess the thing for me, I was, I was always sceptical, much like yourself, Matt. I never sort of believe things because i was told them but i was intrigued by them and i think again mm. there was that sense of wonder there was a, an attraction to energy and forces that we can't understand and, and and so on but i never really felt them myself and after a while i thought well when am i going to feel these is it going to be another 10 years another yeah. 20 years another 50 years and i feel much the same way about ghosts i've never had direct experience of them maybe they exist i can't say they don't <laughs> but to me stories of the bible and so on they're as real as stories of Middle Earth. Yes, there's there's, there's historical precedent and, and, and fact for many of the things that happened in the Bible. You know, there were religious teachers and so on. And, and But I'm not convinced of the, the spiritual side of them in any way, shape or form. At least you've got empirical evidence that Middle Earth existed. He's on what? the other microphone over there. Gandalf. 
Oh, <laughs> yes. Well, he can be so many things. He takes so many shapes, Scott. <laughs> I've already been Father Christmas this episode. I ain't, yeah, don't stretch it. <laughs> oh, we'll get Nodens in there as well somehow. Oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> <laughs> but I wonder, you know, I've listened to some American podcasts, particularly out there radio, with a couple of hosts from Georgia, and they touched upon religion. And I was really keen for them, and I, I contacted them, and they never actually did it, just to do an episode about their religious upbringing. Mm. Because I think whatever upbringing you've had and whatever culture you live in, you, you are a bit blind to it. But living in the southern states, I think it was so different place to be brought up than, than England, you know, religiously. Oh, when I look at you know, my group of friends, I've got two friends that I see maybe once a year. I'm, I'm in loose contact with a couple of old friends that are churchgoers. One's training to be a reverend. Other than that, I can't really think I've got any friends who are religious that, that go to church. I mean, culturally, we're so different. It's kind of weird. It strikes me as being one of the great ironies that the UK has an official religion. It has you know, a, a state religion that is baked into the fabric of our government. Yeah, we have bishops sitting in the House of Lords, one of our Houses of yeah. Parliament. But at the same time, if a politician starts talking about being deeply religious or wanting to govern on religious principles. That's a short way to lose votes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the majority of the populace are going to look at them as if they're mad. Mm -hmm. Whereas in the US, where there is the official separation of church and state, unless a politician is avowedly and vocally religious, they don't stand a chance. That does seem bizarre. I mean, my kids came home from school, you know, aged like 16. They'd had somebody come in at the end of term, and as they often do, and give a talk. And this time they'd talked about Jesus. And there was so much rage uh, from my wife, who teaches in the school, and from <laughs> my, my two kids. It was such an unusual thing. And they were like, oh, my God, this guy was going on about Jesus. And really outraged by it. It was such an unusual thing. Uh, that, that strikes me as being quite an odd reaction as well. I, I guess it depends how it was couched. I mean, yeah, if, I think it, it was... If it was out-and-out out evangelism and yeah, you know, fire and brimstone was. stuff, then, yeah, but I, I can see how that would probably rankle a bit in, you know, in, in most British society. But, yeah, I remember, for example, when I was at school, we had a fantastic religious education teacher who made a point of taking us out to mosques and Sikh temples and uh, to meet local hindus and uh, yeah buddhist temples and 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 so on and we had direct exposure to people from all sorts of religions in, including you know a variety of, of christian sects and hearing these people talking about their their religious beliefs i found absolutely stimulating i mean it left me with a fascination of of world religion and the different varieties of people's religious faith that stuck with me to the the, the present day i love hearing about other people's beliefs and you know, it, yes if someone starts telling me that you know i'm a sinner and i'm going to burn in hell and you know this is the one true way then it, you know, it, it will probably put my back up a bit but I'll still be, at least from an anthropological point of view, interested in what they're saying. I'll just be more inclined to go, say, evangelise on the fast lane of the M1 person. But... <laughs> <laughs> and following on from our previous discussion, we now have a look at how to make mythos cults and cultists more interesting in gaming. Following on from our previous discussion about our own experience of religion... I think all three of us would like to say that we have no intention to denigrate or insult anybody's religious beliefs 
And that was very much about our personal experience of religion. And this next section is very much about how we can use religion in gaming. So Mythos cultists. They're the good guys, right? <laughs> no, Matt. They're guys in robes with knives and they're going to stab you and kill you and bring about the coming of their great god to destroy the earth yeah, full they, stop they're, they're always trying to summon something aren't they, they that's are. what they do and they, they they run around talking nonsense sacrificing summoning <laughs> i mean my problem with that is that it's very black and white they're the bad guys we need to stop them we need to wipe them out usually blow them up kill them that that's often what it comes down to or certainly stopping them there's not much um, indecision about are they good or are they bad well and it's not just that it's that they don't have any real personalities if you do that there's no real kind of nuance to to hook into there's nothing that makes them interesting other than a, just as a a threat to be demolished so if we think about it in a real world if if rather than in a game if there were a real world mythos religion or mythos cult call it what you will what kind of person would start that? Where would it begin? It's got to be someone who's had a mythos experience of some kind, that through some some means or another they have had contact with either a particularly powerful mythos entity or something more extreme, they've actually seen a god. And I think we've seen examples of this in real-world religions, where there are people who have had mystical experiences. They've perhaps gone through years of, of meditation and asceticism, and have touched something beyond themselves. They've come back trying to explain what it is that they've seen, what it is they've touched, what it is they've felt. They aren't necessarily going to be able to explain that to people who haven't had the same experience themselves. And I, I, I think this is one thing that perhaps complicates a lot of religions with, with mystical roots, in that... You either have a path of religion which involves trying to replicate that process, like Buddhism, where you're trying to achieve uh, enlightenment for yourself. Or perhaps you've got the more standard model of religions, where someone's had that mystical experience, they've come back and they've sort of said, here is how to be good to each other, here is the meaning of life, here is a few secrets of you know life beyond death. And people try to model their behaviours on that and, and perhaps create some beliefs, but they aren't having that experience directly for themselves. It's often at remove, isn't it? So these things that we're told are wondrous and, and fantastic, we buy into them because we, as I said earlier, for me, it's that, that thing about a sense of wonder. And if, you know, if somebody's had that mystical experience, I'm probably hearing about it as, as somebody who joins this religion at least secondhand never firsthand it's never actually happening to me it's like this person's telling me about this person they met who mm. you know had this mystical experience of the mythos and i'm like oh that sounds intriguing and i start to buy into it but let's think about this i mean if someone had a mystical experience of the mythos we see this in call of cthulhu and lovecraft in general as being quite a sanity blasting horrifying experience let's say that you did have such a thing why would you then want to spread that word to other people but having lost a bunch of sand to this experience in no way makes you more or less likely to go and tell everybody about it does it well, if i if i have some sort of sanity blasting world changing experience for myself 
you know, I might want to tell you guys about it so you can share it. And then I'll being insane in Call of Cthulhu may well make you an evangelist. Yeah, oh, I'm seeing another side of it there, though, which is almost um, taking some inspiration from Life of Brian, where someone almost becomes an unwilling cult leader, or un- unwitting cult leader, in that um, they have this experience, they try to tell other people about it because maybe it's just shaped their mind so much, maybe they're even trying to warn them about it, but then all these lunatics keep getting gathered to them because they hear this, and it's sort of, oh, here's the great secret of the universe universe tell us more a wise one and the next thing they know they're running a bloody cult cast aside the staff follow the tree <laughs> <laughs> i was just gonna say you realize now in every game that i'm gonna either end up playing or running in now i'm gonna refer to the girl uh, the big bad cultist as a very naughty boy <laughs> <laughs> there's another kind of cult leader though that we see in the real world which is the person who uses the trappings of religion as a way of cementing personal power. Maybe it's for gaining money, maybe it's for sex. Magic uh, points? Yeah. In yes. the game? Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. Basically gathering malleable people to them, that they're using these secrets that they're drip-feeding or un- unveiling, using these sanity-blasting revelations as a means of control. Yeah, this isn't so um, outlandish and fictional as it seems. I did some research for a cult scenario for Cult Divinity Lost um, a little while ago. And yeah, that pretty much describes some of the the darker aspects of televangelism, uh, particularly in the US. Hmm. That there's such ploys as seed money. Say, mm. send, send us thousands of dollars now and you'll be um, effectively, you would accumulate wealth and good returns in the next life. So that they amass absolute insane fortunes beyond the dreams of avarice. This is what's known as the prosperity gospel, isn't yes. it? Yes, yeah. yeah. Yes, yeah, the idea that if God loves you, this is expressed uh, through uh, financial wealth, that the wealthy are obviously the people God loves more, even though this is entirely 180 degrees out from the message of the Gospels. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's... Um quite eye-watering the amount of money you see passing into some of these organisations and yet again it, it works in the real world it would work for mythos cult trying to establish their funding network and as I've mentioned in passing there, another thing that you know, we, we see in particularly smaller new religious movements or cults is this really dysfunctional, horrifying sexual dynamic where you get usually a middle-aged male cult leader who uses charisma and reaching out to vulnerable people as a way of gathering unquestioning women particularly. It obviously depends on the sexual orientation of the cult leader but you know these these people to them who they can then prey upon sexually in the guise of religion i mean i've actually seen this happen in real life i've seen a, a group of wiccans run by a couple who basically used their coven as a way of of getting a bunch of young people there who were looking for answers and basically using that as a way of having lots and lots of sex with them and it was really predatory and fucking creepy again i can see in the mythos that not only would someone might use bits of mythos knowledge as a way of doing that but you know if you got spin-offs from say the esoteric order of dagon where it's all about procreation or where it might be a shubnigarath cult and it is about fertility and fecundity that 
this then adds a, an even nastier dimension to the whole thing, that you had this charismatic cult leader who is perhaps getting all these young women uh, to join the cult and is basically using this as a way of impregnating them, of spreading the seed, of spreading whatever horror it is that now lies within him. You could even use it for your golem act. Mm. As a way of spreading um, cultist propaganda if you started taping such things and then sending them out. Oh, yeah. One of the things I'd like to consider is what an established mythos religion would be like. So if there were this Church of Cthulhu or whatever, and there were some bad activity going on in it, people would probably say, oh, it's not all Church of Cthulhu people. It's just those deviants, they're, they're not really with us. They're Cthulhu fundamentalists, or however one wishes to phrase it. They're not following the true Church of Cthulhu, because if it's going to be a credible religion, then I think it would have to have a more benevolent front, at least. Or even a benevolent core. Yeah. If it did have mythos elements within it, I think it would attract people who were drawn to the darker side of things and they would explore the, their own dimensions of it much like we see with just about any religion in the world people that justify the most horrendous acts under christianity islam buddhism all, all sorts of religions i'm yet to hear anyone commit an atrocity in the name of the flying spaghetti monster though well that you is give it time above all mm. yeah you'll just find, find random people boiled out in the streets <laughs> And I think one thing we touched on the last episode, which would play into that heavily, is the fact that cults or new religious movements are largely defined by the fact that they're small and they're relatively young religions. That if um, you get one of these that survives for long enough, um, then it does either die out or, or gather some degree of respectability. Let's take an example from the fiction. Let's say that the Starry Wisdom Church, which we see in The Haunter of the Dark, in the story, that is driven out of Providence. Um, when Robert Blake finds their church, it's, it's abandoned. I mean, there are still a few accoutrements and artefacts there, but the people are long gone. But what if they had survived long enough to become respectable? What if they'd ended up surviving into the 1930s and having a radio ministry? What if they'd opened up branches all over the US and perhaps now spread into uh, you know, an, an, an international setting? We don't know too much about what their beliefs were from the story. But it's the fact that they're talking about wisdom from the stars – and this isn't hugely different to a number of, of world religions. And depending on how that's stated, yes, all right, there may be secret rites that go on with things like the Shining Trapezohedron, where people get visions directly of other worlds and summon up creatures from beyond. But on the whole, that could be couched in quite a benign way. You could see people going along and, and going to these church services where instead of praying to God, they're praying to the stars and wanting to commune with the messages that are coming out and, and being beamed from alien intelligences far beyond. We see a few real-world religions that believe things that aren't hugely different than that. And, you know, we see astrology and so on, which is a belief in the, the effects of the stars and so on upon us. Uh, not a religion, but perhaps one could equate some of it. 
So, yeah, I mean, if you were then a group of investigators and you found out that a particular branch of um, the Starry Wisdom had the Shining Trapezohedron, that they were using it in blasphemous rites to summon up the Haunter of the Dark or your know, hunting horrors or, or something like that, that this perhaps posed some kind of threat to the larger community. But this was one branch of a much larger network of churches that was seen as being a legitimate religion. Uh, what would that do? I mean, churches tend to have fairly strong roots in their local communities. They're involved mm. with local politics. Uh, and uh, so if you go and then attack this organisation, they're going to hit back. Yeah, I think particularly as it becomes more widespread, it becomes more acceptable and more people join on the periphery and they don't necessarily buy into the the deeper core material like you, you, you talked about but they see it as a benevolent part of their society. Yeah, in fact, this may be a, a rather distasteful comparison to make, and apologies, I'm not trying to belittle the real tragedies here. But if we look at the way that the people who initially were trying to expose some of the sex scandals within the Catholic Church were treated, the, you know, they were sidelined, they were treated as lunatics, they were suppressed, they didn't mm. get a voice in the press... If you were trying to say that, yes, oh, hang on, certain aspects of this church are really sacrificing people or summoning up monsters from beyond space and time, then, yeah, it's, it's not too much of a leap to think that they'd be treated in the same way. By both believers and by the core of the church as well. Well, not just that, but also by the larger community. I mean, yeah, uh, believers is what I meant. Well, you know. no, no, not even believers, because the Catholic Church was so successful initially at suppressing these stories. People either didn't, you know, hear about them or were quick to dismiss the people who were starting to try to bring the word out. I remember there was that famous case back in the nineties. Uh, Sinead O'Connor appeared on Saturday Night Live and pretty much destroyed her career overnight by ripping up a picture of the Pope on stage. And what she was actually trying to do there, apparently, was to start the dialogue about the fact that the church was suppressing these stories. But she did a really piss-poor job of actually explaining that. Basically, her career ended, um, she became a laughing stock in the press, and you didn't have to be a Catholic to sort of think, oh, hang on, she's a bit of a lunatic. Now, cult leaders are one thing, but a cult isn't usually a singular person, it's multiple people. So, how would they come to join an organisation, a cult such as a mythos, or a mythos cult? Are we talking at its very inception, or later on at its Both. inception? It's one very charismatic individual, isn't it, typically, speaking to people they know, they're, they're an established circle, um, who are drawn in. And also, the person has to be seeking something. I don't think when something is presented as a sort of cult of personality, like you know that one big cult leader and and you know a bunch of acolytes, I don't think most undamaged individuals would be attracted to joining mm. something like that. Most people who are looking for strong answers or strong control or meaning like that are doing so because there is something fundamentally missing inside them. Maybe they had a really bad upbringing. Maybe they they have a mental illness. They've uh, been through some sort of crisis with drugs or whatever it may be. Yes. Yeah. And whatever it is, they need something bigger than themselves to give themselves purpose. And if that bigger thing has a human face and is telling them that everything will be all right if they just do X, Y, and Z, then they're very vulnerable to being recruited. 
we were talking initially about the idea of trying to make cults more interesting or more human. Well, I think that's a big one, which is instead of looking at cultists in Whole of Cthulhu as being these maniacal, stabby, robe-wearing, uh, faceless mooks, that they are damaged people who have been drawn to try to find answers in this. They're, they're more victims than horrors. Mm, that's the word I was thinking, victims. So that immediately makes them more human, more sympathetic, I think, and mm. more three-dimensional. When it comes to the, the wider cult, as, as investigators, the question of what we do with these people... Is the fact that they can be driven to do really horrible things. I mean, you know, we see this a lot nowadays with, um, you know, say people who watch a lot of ISIS recruitment training videos online ending up becoming radicalised, or people who get involved with neo-Nazi movements getting encouraged through cult-like behaviour into performing, you know, absolutely atrocious acts. Just because someone is a vulnerable person doesn't mean that they can't be manipulated by the right people into doing really horrific things. Yes, one thing I wish would be explored a bit more in scenarios particularly is where does a person come from before they don the robes and pick up the knife or the tommy gun? What's their name, what's their ambitions and what led them to come to this point? Yeah, I mean, I guess as research for that, one could look at the people who have gone down that track in the real world, you know, look at their upbringing there and their, their transition into that religion or cult or whatever it was. And I think another aspect of this as well is Stockholm Syndrome. Perhaps someone who's been tricked into joining a cult or maybe even kidnapped by them may also end up identifying with the cultists around them. We just need to look at the example of Patty Hearst, the heiress of the Hearst fortune back in the, you know, the early 70s, who was kidnapped by a terrorist group, the Symbionese Liberation Army. I think their initial plan was to ransom her, but she ended up identifying with them so much that within months she was going out with a machine gun and robbing banks with them. Mm. Yeah, I think much of our beliefs and opinions are shaped by the people around us, or at least they give us or a reinforcement, don't they, of, yeah. of our beliefs. And many people are pretty malleable, particularly in their teenage years and, and, and 20s, mm. and probably all through their life. I mean, perhaps we all are, but I think many people are very malleable. And if you put them in a group of people that believe something, you know, they can be kind of become more extreme. If perhaps they're vegetarian and they have a, a leaning towards the belief in equal rights for animals, and then they get in with a crowd who are related with extreme acts on sort of animal liberation, they can get drawn into that. And I've, I've seen that happen. Mm. So I think there's a lot of people that, given the right or wrong, experience can follow that path quite easily because we want yeah. reinforcement we want acknowledgement from the people around us and this is something perhaps again it would be interesting to explore in a game of call of cthulhu which is what if it's the people we care about friends family loved ones who are getting drawn into this cult it doesn't even have to be that they're suddenly being driven to blood sacrifice and summoning horrors from from beyond 
But the fact that you know you do have someone who is beginning to develop more and more ideas about the nature of the universe and you know the secret gods behind it, and their behaviour is getting stranger. How do you deal with that? As the Call of Cthulhu investigator is a cultist, you shoot cultists, don't you? But what do you do if the cultist isn't directly threatening and is someone you love? So I was watching Stranger Things recently, the second season, and I'm not going to give any spoilers for the show here, but something resonated with me in relation to this topic. In the show, a couple of characters go to see that conspiracy nut. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Who knows what's going on? You know, it's not, you know, well, I guess it is a conspiracy, right? But it's the real one in in the show. And they talk about, oh, we can show this to the world now. And he's like, well, no, because they won't believe us. It's too crazy. They won't buy it. He's a conspiracy yes. nut that actually realises how the world works. Yes. yes. <laughs> yeah, we have to give them a sanitised, watered-down version. Yeah, so let's say to, it's yeah. just like, yes, there are scientists there doing weird things, but let's say they, they've released some toxic chemicals because people will buy into that and they'll be frightened of that. Let's not give them the truth. So I think our mythos religion, we don't want to say oh, there's this big tentacle god under the sea who's going to kill everybody and cause mayhem. No, let's say that it's a bit like Christianity, that the Messiah is neither dead nor alive. He's kind of something else. Dreaming. And he's going to come back for us. I can kind of see a way that could be bizarrely kind of meshed into, say, Christianity. Or at least even adopting some of the iconography. Using an example from the real world, and again, this might get a bit controversial, probably not. The Church of Scientology has no Christian foundations to its belief at all, yet its symbol is a stylized cross. The reason for that is to try to make it look more palatable and respectable to a culture that is suffused with Christianity. Yeah, for example, you know, let's say that you had a cult of Shibnigarath that was attempting to become respectable or legitimate, that adopting a symbol that was perhaps something that looked a bit like a cross, but maybe was a tree that mm. had grown into the shape of a cross, and this was the symbol of your, your church... Or maybe even, you know, adopting old iconography like the, you know, the green man and a a lot of pagan symbols. All of a sudden, this is something that people can relate to, the spoonful of sugar to to help all the mad medicine go down. There's also, thinking again back to the original stories, there are a couple of big instances where you can see that the cults effectively move into the territory of a previous religion. You've got the Church of the Star of Wisdom, they took over an existing church. You've got the Esoteric Order of Dagon, they took over a Masonic temple. Yes. So it is like they are like a virus or parasite moving in once they've killed the existing entity. Mm. Yeah, and it might be interesting to have a Call of Cthulhu scenario where you actually see that playing out in real time, where you're playing members of the congregation or even the clergy of a church, and a new priest has come to your congregation, and he's paying lip service to the gospel, but at the same time there's a few other messages creeping in there as well, and some of the practices uh, are beginning to change a bit, and he's having private conversations with some of the congregation, and and their beliefs are beginning to change. All of a sudden, you just don't recognise the parish that you're part of anymore. And historically, we see how when Christianity came to this country, it adopted quite a lot of the 
established religions or uh, or symbols and so on into itself Mm. and that is pretty established way that religions adopt cultures isn't it and they also spread their tendrils or or tentacles out into religion and and all walks of life really into charitable institutions or, or manner of things you see churches with outreach programs and i mean this is perhaps a really good way of a mythos cult recruiting people that self-help programs uh, counseling programs programs for people with addiction issues these are all ways of appearing to be part of the larger community but at the same time identifying those people who would be really useful or at least malleable recruits for the cult and hard to criticise if they're doing actually good things in the world. You know, if we had Cthulhu aid, you know, going out <laughs> and helping people in war-torn areas and, well, wouldn't they be digging wells and bringing water to people? Um, <laughs> considering that the gospel of the great old ones is to teach humanity new ways of killing and self-destruction, yeah, going to war-torn areas is a great place to spread your gospel. <laughs> One thing about the esoteric order of Dagon going out and helping in communities after a tsunami. Yeah. You know, sort of, you've seen the power of the sea now. Let us teach you some ways of respecting it and, and you know, helping to ensure this doesn't happen again. It's all flooded. Sorry, what's the problem? <laughs> but it's all under under water it, now. It, it'll, yep. It'll be fine once your gill slits grow in. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Let me introduce you to some friends who can help this happen. This is the answer to climate change. Don't worry that your Holy area shit, is going yeah. to be subsumed underwater. You just get these little gill implants in your neck. Oh, You'll be God. fine. Yeah, can you imagine you know, a, a Cthulhu or Dagon cult attempting to establish itself somewhere like the Maldives, a set of islands which is slowly sinking underwater at the moment yeah. as, as water levels rise? Probably not within our lifetimes, but certainly by the end of the century, those islands may not exist anymore. Yeah, can you imagine the ways that they could go and, and recruit somewhere like that? Can you imagine it, Scott? We don't have to imagine the real horror. You've seen Waterworld, right? <laughs> that is the horror. <laughs> I was more thinking of the US government's opinion that climate change does not exist. Hmm. How, what tendril got to them, I wonder. Mm. <laughs> and that actually leads to a very interesting point, which is religion and politics have been linked together for as long as religion and politics have existed. We see this everywhere in the world, not just in theocratic regimes, but we see religions trying to influence uh, political outcomes. And I think that would be actually a really good example. I mean, if you wanted to do... I mean, this is probably more Delta Green than anything else, <laughs> but you could set up a scenario where, you know, the revelation is that Cthulhu cult cultists or Dagon cultists have taken over the Environmental Protection Agency for exactly that reason, because they want to accelerate global warming. They want to, you know, encourage all these catastrophes. They want the world to be underwater. Deep ones want a new holiday destination, so sink parts of New York. Or, or maybe they're just trying to thaw out all the permafrost over the mountains of madness. That you could, too. You could bring that in with Ithaca or Itharqua, however you want to pronounce him, the Windwalker potentially trying to spread almost like a day after tomorrow scenario where most of the uh, cold weather starts descending over the northern uh, Well, that'd be bad then, because he's trying to freeze the, the world and they're trying to thaw it, so... There you go, a mythos holy war. There we go. Yeah. 
But I think that that interplay between politics and religion is probably fairly rich ground in general for Call of Cthulhu scenarios. We talked about it on the grand scale there, but on the smaller scale, we've seen on the more nefarious side, again, sorry, going back to the Church of Scientology, they had this thing, Operation Snow White, which was their attempt basically to infiltrate and influence uh, particularly the IRS, because this was when they were trying to get their tax-exempt status. And they basically mounted a dirty tricks campaign that involved everything from, you know, stealing and changing records to more traditional political lobbying. It was sort of that borderline between standard political operations and downright criminal, you know, organised crime activities. Mm. And you could really imagine a mythos cult that had some agenda that would be helped by the action of local politicians. Maybe it is just getting the police to turn a blind eye to some of the things that they've been doing. Not policing the Louisiana Bayou, for example. On a completely different tack... One thing that really makes a religion or a branch of religion feel unique, if we're thinking about how to texture Cthulhu cults, is the way that it integrates with the place and the culture that it's located. That you know, religions that, that grow up in the desert seem to feel very different than ones that grow up in the mountains and ones that grow up in islands, particularly when they shift between them. I, taking an example from the real world, Buddhism started out as you know, something you know, more akin to a philosophy, a, you know, a series of practices to try to uh, deal with the, the pain and suffering of human life. And then you get it moving to Tibet, and it integrates with the local cultures and beliefs and people there, and turns into something that's almost unrecognisable. Tibetan Buddhism is almost an animistic religion. There's beliefs in spirits and, and demons. There's prayer. It's, it's much more of a recognisable religion. So they change over time. The religion changes over time. It's influenced by local beliefs and established beliefs that were there before it. So this is something that happens over decades and centuries already, right? Yeah, very much so. Let's take a fairly extreme example. If we think of a cult of Dagon, this is something we inherently associate with the sea. What happens if that moves inland? You know, we've got maybe not the esoteric order of Dagon, but a cult of Dagon that has been driven out from where it's, it's taken root and has fled up into, say, the mountains. What would a mountain-dwelling cult of Dagon look like? The only thing that springs to mind for me is that, because obviously they've got no immediate proximity to the ocean, pilgrimage becomes a very large part of that. Yeah, and, and also, you know, the, the relationship with water becomes very, very important. They'll, you know, try to find lakes where they'd, you know, perhaps do, um, you know, rituals you know, as an ersatz form of the sea, as a way of connecting with the sea. Or, again, follow the path of rivers as part of, their, part of their journey and so forth, or particularly deep rivers would be one place for them to look to. And also, there would be this sense of 
of loss of isolation that would be baked into their beliefs and cultures. It's almost like the tribes of Israel having been you know, driven out and enslaved and so on. It's, it, it, it would be this, this sense of, of having been so greatly wronged and perhaps you know, it would even grow into the beliefs that you know, one day the sea will be ours again. The sea has been promised to us by Dagon and Hydra and Cthulhu and one day we will recover it you know, when, when we are strong enough again. Let's build on what we were discussing and come up with a mythos cult of our own. Now, we've had a bit of time to think about what a mythos religion might be like, but let's see if we can flesh out a few examples. So we've each had a think individually, and let's bring it to the table. What have, what have you got, Matt? And this is the first time I've been given homework, even if it was by Scott, for years. I started off with thinking, yeah, you've got cults of Shubnigrath, you've got cults of Dagon, you've got cults of all the mythos gods. I want to do something that hasn't had, at least not as far as I can tell, has had a cult centred around it before. But then when I started burrowing into some of the original text for it, realised, actually, this guy is described as a high priest. So, in fact, he could be the last remaining bit of a very ancient cult. From the wonderful sonnet cycle, The Fungi from Yogoth, there's the description of the Elder Pharos, in which it states that the last Elder One lives on alone, talking to chaos with the beat of drums, um, that he sits in this monastery. It's featured in one particular campaign, but very tangentially. It's also that this high priest of that is, which is not to be described, has been given lots of different explanations as to what it could be. Some of the materials, such as in Malice Monstorum, the Cthulhu Bithos Encyclopedia, label it as an avatar of Neathlotep. Um, others say that it might be an avatar of the King in Yellow, given it wears a silken mask of yellow, even though Lovecraft developed the character uh, long before he'd read Chambers. So it's just maybe parallel development on that front. I was just going to take it literally to say he is the last Elder One. Now, there are temples of the Elder Ones which exist all across the Dreamlands. There's one in Ulthar, there's one in Inganok, which features in the Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath, which is very near Leng. What are the Elder Ones? They're never explained in the text as to what they are. They're just this hmm. group of beings and entities of which there now is just one that sits in this monastery and talks to chaos. What if you had a dreamer? Because we've said about cults that are normally founded by single individuals. A dreamer that has followed in the footsteps of someone like Carter and gone on their epic dream quest um, across the dreamlands and has discovered these temples and starts asking, okay, what are the older ones? And gets pointed towards that temple from which this beam of light goes up into the night sky. Dan goes to have a chat with this last elder one. And that is their religious experience. Maybe that after talking to Chaos themselves, whatever Chaos may be, maybe it might be the Court of Azathoth with a reference to drums and Chaos. Maybe it's something else entirely. But they have come back to the world suddenly invigorated by finding we know our true purpose, or not most our true purpose. He's found purpose. But the true meaning of humanity's existence, that they are just specks in an infinite black sea of infinity, and that he wants to bring this revelation to all, but not in a malicious way, to give people that purpose to suddenly realise, yeah, you're wondering about, is there a God? Is there, um, is there a heaven? No, this is how the, um, the universe works. 
In a way, this this almost feels like existentialist philosophy, that by pointing out fundamentally that there is no meaning in human existence, by wiping away any concept in that, you end up with this idea that you are then liberated to become whatever it is that you should be. Hmm. It is your responsibility then to find your own purpose, liberated from the expectations of the God or a church or, um, or, or, or any... You know, deeper philosophical meaning. Yeah, you are effectively casting aside the kind of trappings and restrictions of believing in some other deluded religious model. That you are confronted with the truth in big capital letters, underlined neon sign, the works. Well, that guy is the dreamer, right? But yes. when he comes back to start a religion, as adherents of the religion, do we get that experience as well? I mean, maybe he's able to take some people uh, the, the way i'd some people on that the way i'd kind of seen it develop that obviously he needs to cultivate a following it might be that he starts to find other dreamers across the dreamlands the other people that come from the waking world to visit there and start slowly building with them so he has this small think of them as your like your 12 apostles that they ha- he has mm. a small power base that he helps to spread this geographically but also on a, a time scale you've got 50 people will make significantly quicker work than one person they come back to the waking world and start to practice, or at least offer practices of self-help, uh, meditation, a way to find inner peace and calm. And, and help communicate to with each yeah. other across the world, maybe over the internet, right? Yeah. If it's a modern-day cult. Mm-hmm. Oh, I very much see it as a modern-day thing, yeah. Yeah. Um, again, using this kind of angle of self-help that you've seen publicised in God knows how many countries around the world. It's a way to better improve yourself, better improve your psyche, your thought process. And maybe when you get to a certain point within this community, there might be those that define themselves having a natural aptitude to become dreamers might be able to walk down those steps of slumber. I mean, there's a big thing in visualisation and lucid dreaming and so on. I mean, that's that's a big industry Mm. in books and and Mm. belief already. So that would obviously link into this. Yeah, so you you tap into that because, say, it's so so widespread already it's an easy thing like as we discussed cults becoming a parasite they just work their way into something mm. and slowly subvert it if yeah want, well if- i mean I, I can see you know if you were looking at that happening in the modern world with the the current interest in buddhist practice of mindfulness and meditation the fact that you're trying to directly experience um the real world around you without any preconceptions you know through the practice of meditation it strikes me as being that you know that could almost be a, an entry point an aspect that they could use to bring people into this cult mm that by teaching them deeper and deeper meditation practices and, and bring them to the stage where they can actually dream and experience the dreamlands and experience this revelation themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and plus, it's not the only way to, um, to access the dreamlands would be necessarily through dream. Dunsany wrote the short story The Hashish Man, where he outlined that certain um, psychedelic drugs could be a way to be able to access the dreamlands as well. Mm. So that could, if you're thinking of putting it into a... Um, standard scenario template you've got a drug hook there which is obviously something that could be classified as a nefarious activity that would draw the attention that someone would then want to go in and find out what's going on so that's what gives you at least a hook for uh, getting the investigators interest yeah. rather than having them completely benign and completely great and, and so on. but yeah fundamentally i didn't see them as having any hostile intent that i wanted to try and think of a cult that wasn't yeah we're going to bring about a god, um, summoning a god to end the end the world no just reveal the truth i mean mine is much the same it doesn't really have a hostile intent at its core i suppose but i think that adherents of that are going to subvert it and take it in their own direction 
perhaps find distorted versions of it, perhaps stray into the dreamlands and find something else or be possessed by something else and form corrupt parts of that. You know, you describe it as a fairly benign religion, but it's going to open up gateways to great dangers for many people. Yeah, and, and if someone that had, does go to the, the monastery on, in Leng as part of their pilgrimage through the dreamlands, suddenly is exposed to what, well, let's say, is the court of Azathoth that they're being exposed to, that it is ultimate chaos, that someone does fail their sand check there and goes completely off the deep end, you could have them running amok when they get back to the real world just not caring about anything anymore. They're saying, we are but nothing, so what does it matter if yeah. I go around and slaughter whole families and well, so on? Well, it could even go beyond that, that you know, they don't even necessarily have to have that direct experience. If the priests or the adherents of the cult are skilled enough at communicating the fundamental meaninglessness of life, if they're introducing this idea of complete radical freedom to people, you know, some of the people that they may introduce this to might have been holding back from horrible things that they were doing until that point. But now, you know, it's, it's nothing matters. You know, what does it matter if I suddenly indulge all my basest impulses? Mm. Yeah, because it's like nothing else matters at this point. Mm. It is completely irrelevant. Well, and mm. it's almost like the Cthulhu cult in that respect, you know, that we will become as the great old ones. That complete freedom from human concerns. Mm. What about yourself, Scott? Well, interestingly, I, I had a slightly similar idea, but, you know, very different in execution, in that, yeah, I was thinking about someone who had had a profound mystical experience, and the one that occurred to me was perhaps visiting the court of Azathoth. Uh, but it could fundamentally be any deep religious mythos experience, a direct exposure to a god. But more than that, exposure in such a way that it involves travelling to a different place that is completely unlike any human preconceptions is such a transformative experience that you do have this thing that I mentioned before where you have the person come back and try to relate this experience to other people. The other people can't share it directly. All they can do is try to understand the imperfect, perhaps parable-filled way that this new cult leader is trying to describe his experiences. We talked a little bit on the, the show before. I don't think we did in the last episode, but we've mentioned it in passing before. This idea of cargo cults. Cargo cults are these things that, that grew up in the, I think, Pacific Islands. I can't remember specifically which island, but it was the idea that during the Second World War, I believe, there were cargo drops on islands where people hadn't been exposed to aircraft or crates of cargo before. And they saw what happened through a religious lens to the extent where they constructed rituals to try to encourage you know, more cargo to come, building mock aeroplanes and, and uh, landing strips and so on as a way of connecting it to try to encourage the, you know, the gods or whatever it was to drop more cargo off with them. It's that, that imperfect understanding of what happened. And I'm very taken with the idea of this cult that has taken this trip to the court of Azathoth as almost allegorical. They're trying to create rituals that replicate it. They're constructing temples that represent you know, different aspects of the court of Azathoth, performing rituals which involve piping, trying to replicate the actions of these gods and entities beyond their understanding with no direct experience, with no real connection to what they're doing, that this is almost all theatre. 
what could make them dangerous out of that is sort of frustration. Let's say that you know, their, their cult leader perhaps at this stage has moved on or died, but they're going through these empty rituals. But they're not getting the same things out of it that he did. Is this going to then lead them to sort of escalate these practices, to do more and more dangerous and deranged things? Are they going to go out and try to find more mythos knowledge and work that in and perhaps do some unwise spells? Are they going to move to something like human sacrifice? What are they going to do to try to make their connection with these gods that they've only heard about real? I could almost see them by accident sitting uh, or standing around on a deserted island in the middle of the ocean. Hundreds of drummers and then flute players accidentally uh, in their cacophony summoning up a servitor of the outer gods. Yes, yeah, because they, they just plain don't know what they're doing. Surely it's much more dangerous if they do that in a populated area than forget about doing that out in somewhere remote. Perhaps they meet at a local community centre once a week and run through these trappings. You know, sooner or later, they accidentally connect with something real. <laughs> that, that could have absolutely devastating consequences. But maybe not for all of them, maybe just for a, a few individuals again. Mm. You know, maybe some of them, you know, while they're drumming and piping and, and chanting in their circle as I can't, I'm envisaging, <laughs> some of them actually see the light, if you like. Mm. The nuclear light. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How about you, Paul? What do you have in mind? So I thought back to the cult of Cthulhu and how that might manifest. Not an ancient version of it, but a more modern-day version of it. Some wealthy individual who has a place by the beach is down there late one night, and has an encounter with you know, angels from the sea. And they give him a likeness of Cthulhu. And they learns things. And he goes out there for a few nights. Maybe he tells some of his friends about it. Maybe he's the only one that actually met the Deep Ones. But he's got this soapstone idol or something like that that he can show them. And he's got a, a teaching and, and a faith to sort of put to them about the drowned god, if you like. It could be a, almost a corruption of Christianity that they, they, they kind of buy into. And as, the, as they spread it to a wider community, now in the modern day, we might be looking at this cult and sort of saying, well, this guy said he met deep ones and got this, this idol, but we don't have the idol anymore. I don't know what happened to that. Do, do these deep ones, did they exist? Does it matter if they existed? Because they, they say that the, the God is down under the sea. Is he really under the sea? Or is he, you know, is, is he in heaven? Is that a, a, an allegory? And he's going to come back. Well, that's very much like Christian religion, right? He's going to come back. Mm. Um, we don't know when, and there's nothing we can do really to facilitate that happening. So I don't see them necessarily being a cult that are trying to summon up their God, but they're living in a way that is perhaps quite a benevolent one. If you had a cult like that in a Call of Cthulhu game, how would you expect the investigators to engage with them? I think because they would draw in people that read other things, the cult might sort of say, yes, there are parts of the Necronomicon that, that have been mistranslated <laughs> and, you know, the original Arabic meant such and such. Um, but these passages are heretical and were added, you know, at a later date or mistranslations. But obviously other people are going to come into the cult and they're going to buy into it, but then they're going to read their own thing into those translations. And they may be the, the stabby ones with robes and so on. But the core Cthulhu religion would want to distance themselves from such madmen. 
It also occurs to me that, you know, one interesting way you might use them if they are entirely benevolent that perhaps they're even involved with a local charity or perhaps you know serve a similar purpose as something like the masons in that they provide some connection between members of the community that you then have a group of hardened Cthulhu investigators who have dealt with mythos cults before, who come in, sort of see some of these trappings, and it's sort of, oh yeah, all right, evil cultists, we must kill, we must get the Tommy guns and dynamite, we've got some cleansing to do. And basically they're just going around murdering all these comparatively ordinary people in the community. And I think one could play up the less desirable aspects of the religion as we would see them. So they may well have arranged marriages. They may be very patriarchal. They mm. may be things that our liberal society would very much frown on. Or there may be rituals that they conduct which look a bit frightening to the outside, but are actually completely harmless. Yeah. Baptism rituals. When you refer to the drowned god, I was suddenly thinking of, obviously, Game of Thrones. Yeah, or yeah. Song of Ice and Fire. That phrase. And, uh, you know, sort of thinking about the baptism rituals there, where you sort of ritually drown someone and then resuscitate them. Mm. Again, that would look terrifying to an outsider but you know for them it's a a natural expression of their religious faith (laughs) the good friends of jackson elias now have a patreon page think of it as an electronic donation box to help with the running costs of the show the podcast will remain free and donations are entirely voluntary follow the patreon link on blasphemoustomes.com thanks for listening it is that time in the episode once again where we thank Everyone who backs us via Patreon. The money that you give us, uh, it, it does so much. I mean, it keeps the podcast going. Uh, it, it pays more than adequately for all our running costs, uh, new equipment. And it's got to the stage now where you know, we're actually able to pay ourselves a small wage for, uh, for the work we do on this, which means we're now spending more time doing research and preparing for episodes and putting more work into the editing. Yes, thank you to each and every one of you who's, who's making all this possible. And we have a lot of new people to thank this week. This is very obviously because we are putting out issue three of the Blasphemous Tome, as we mentioned earlier. Uh, This will be going out before the end of the year. And there is still time to get on board. If you back us before the end of this month, then you will receive at least one copy. Go to BlasphemousTomes.com for more details. So starting at the $1 level, we have a big thanks going out to... Thomas Swenderman. Indeed, thank you very much, Thomas. Yes, thank you, Thomas. And many thanks go out to Jeremy Duncan, so thank you very much, Jeremy. Yes, thank you, Jeremy. Thank you, Jeremy. And thank you very much to Aaron Sturgill. Yeah, thank you very much, Aaron. Indeed, thank you, Aaron. And thank you very much to Justin B. Indeed, thank you very much, Justin. Yes, thank you, Justin. And thanks go out to Gil Cruz, so thank you very much, Gil. Yes, thank you very much, Gil. Thanks, Gil. And thank you to Mike Dukes. Thank you very much, Mike. Indeed. Cheers, Mike. And a thank you to Darren Kerr. Indeed. Thank you very much, Darren. Yes, thank you very much, Darren. And also, thanks go out to Jamie Moore. So, thank you very much, Jamie. Yes, thank you, Jamie. Thank you, Jamie. And thank you to Samuel Van Dyke. Thank you, Samuel. Thank you very much, Samuel. And thank you to Charlie Vick. Indeed. Thank you very much, Charlie. Yes, thank you, Charlie. And thanks to Scott M. Endres. So, thank you very much, Scott. Yes, thank you, Scott. Thank you, Scott. And... I hope we're pronouncing this right. Uh, thank you very much to David Yakovishin. 
Thank you, David. Indeed. Thank you very much, David. All right. Now we're on to the $3 level. And I shall propose a toast to Matt Ryan. So cheers, Matt. Indeed. Cheers, Matt. Yes, thank you and cheers, Matt. Right, we definitely have a lot of people to say cheers to this time. So another one goes out to Eric Sir. So cheers, Eric. Yes, thank you and cheers, Eric. Cheers, Eric. And cheers and thank you to John Sumrow. Yeah, thanks very much, John. Cheers, John. And thanks very much and cheers to Sean Blankenship. Indeed, cheers, Sean. Yes, thank you and cheers, Sean. And more cheers go out to Morton Jurgensen. So thank you very much, Morton. Yes, thank you and cheers, Morton. Thanks, Morton. And thank you and cheers to Joanna Jones. Yeah, thanks very much, Joanna. Hey, cheers, Joanna. As regular listeners to the show, or those who have been warned by people who care about them will know, we too, on occasion, sing. We sing the thanks of people who back us at the $5 level. These songs are expressions of gratitude. They are great eruptions of... of bestial primal emotion um they are not really necessarily musical but they're heartfelt again thank you to the imminent blasphemous tome we have a great many people who have backed us at this level we do try to limit ourselves to two songs per episode it's the decent thing to it's do. a kindness really yeah it yeah. is still torture <laughs> and um so as a result we are going to be drip-feeding these in through, at this stage, probably about the next five or six episodes. So if you are expecting a song from us and it doesn't happen within the next episode or two, please bear with us. Your, your turn will come. There is no escape. Well, the first song today goes out to Chris Kenaway. So thank you very much, Chris. Oh, boy. Thank you very much, Chris. Yes, thank you, Chris. Chris, 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 can I wait, 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 can I wait, 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 can I wait, 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 Chris, 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 can I wait, 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 can I wait, 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 can I wait, wait, wait. And the next person we're thanking is Nathan Ballingrud. Now, those of you who are receiving a copy of The Blasphemous Tome will actually see that I've written a review of one of Nathan's books in there. And th- th- this is completely unrelated to the fact that he's back Sounds us. not just to me. What do you think, Matt? Uh, well, I was thinking there might be a reason why those, that were the last four pages that got missing from It was a glowing <laughs> review as well, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, no, honestly, um, Nathan wrote a book a few years ago called North American Lake Monsters. It's a collection of short stories, and it is simply one of the best collections of short stories I've ever read. If you're a horror fan, if you like weird fiction, and more than that, if you like horror or weird fiction with a bit more emotional depth and characterization to it, his stuff is, I personally, I think, really quite profoundly uh, affecting. Uh, he's won all sorts of awards, including the Shirley Jackson Award for this collection, and I can't recommend it highly enough. Well, after reading your review in the Tome Scott, I did put it on my Christmas list. So having said all these wonderful things about him, we're now going to do this to him. So thank you and sorry, Nathan. <laughs> Yeah, thank you, Nathan. Oh, boy. Brace yourself, Nathan. Thank you! 
Well, let's have a quick look at what's been going on on social media. Over on G+, Christine Fishers commented on our recent episode about the shunned house. I may be the only person who enjoyed the investigative procedural feel of that long exposition section. It seemed the happy, if methodically slow, antithesis of, I roll library use. What libraries do you go to? What sort of stuff do you look for? I just roll library use, okay? It's on my sheet. Yeah, it was kind of the opposite of that. I mean, I, I think I enjoyed elements of it, but it just hmm. seemed to go on a bit long, as we, as we said. But it does sort of show how library use could be more interesting, and particularly I, I can imagine if there are handouts and things like that that illustrate it. I was actually more thinking library suddenly makes, uh, just I roll the skill suddenly makes it more palatable. <laughs> <laughs> so, yep, here's your handouts. There you go, done. Whereas I, I, I feel a bit more ambivalently about that opening section. I, yes, I, I did find it a bit of a struggle to get through but no I, I definitely appreciate what Christine's talking about here in that the texture that Lovecraft brought to the story through that that the historical detail even though some of it did feel completely unneeded did it made it feel like yeah more of an investigation I think there is a happy middle ground to be found if I played through every bit of that in the Call of Cthulhu game I would probably walk away complaining about it for years afterwards <laughs> I think bringing some of that to a game is is definitely good. Can't Charlie. imagine you complaining for years afterwards about something, Scott. <laughs> I was just going to say, challenge accepted. <laughs> <laughs> and Daniel Carroll over on G Plus comments, I'm still confused about how they would actually use a crook's tube as a weapon. They only make the glass glow and a little bit of air and don't project anything. So it's no more dangerous than a fluorescent light bulb i think getting hit with a light bulb is still pretty painful <laughs> but if you're insubstantial mm. well, that's, that's, that's the, the important issue. thing i don't know how the crook's tube would have been adapted in the story but my limited understanding i've never actually seen a crook's tube is that it's a, a an early form of cathode ray tube that it does actually project this beam of electrons i mean it, the the electrons are absorbed then and create that fluorescence on the inside of the tube but if you were to take the tube out and uh, kind of shoot a beam of electrons at something insubstantial, then, well, it would probably still do fuck all, but it would feel like you're doing more than just hitting it with a stick and, and having the stick go through it. You might end up tickling it. Yes. I think fundamentally here, there's a confusion between two matters, which we need to clarify. On the one hand, we have science, with a small s, which we know <laughs> and love. And on the other hand, we have science with a capital S and an exclamation mark. Maybe three exclamation marks. At least three, Paul. At least three. And, and in small caps. And I think when we use the Crooks tube, you know, we're talking pop through there. Well, actually, that's interesting because if we're looking at the shunned houses from a gaming point of view... Until that point, really. it's not in the slightest bit pulpy. And then, yes, they turn up with science and fucking flamethrowers. And it's, yeah, it is like the Call of Cthulhu group, you know, sat there, played through it all, played through this Call of Cthulhu investigation. And then, you know, at some point, the players turned around to the keeper and said, I'm finding this a bit boring. Can we play Pop Cthulhu? And said, Oh, yeah, all right. Yeah. And just for the last <laughs> scene. Yeah. Also over on G. Adam Alexander says, I miss the early efforts to mimic Gregorian chant. I don't. 
<laughs> except, except, of course, if you were listening to the last episode, we did go back to it like dogs to our own vomit. Ew. Never has such a truer analogy been spoken. <laughs> well, I'd like to think after... I think we've been doing this for, what, 70 episodes or something now? More than 70 episodes, probably, since we did the first song. And, yeah, it's they, they've certainly become more complicated, if not any more competent. We've got very gone down the prog route, haven't we? <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, I'm now picturing Paul sitting there mixing these afterwards with racks of keyboards around him. <laughs> He's just nodding and smiling. <laughs> A guitar with two, maybe three necks. <laughs> All of them writhing in terror trying to get away from you. <laughs> Then, to wrap up with some final thoughts, how well do we think Call of Cthulhu usually handles cults? And are we now inspired to try to make them a bit richer and more textured and more, I don't know, human? Oh, for me, definitely. It's it's actually something I've had bumbling away in the back of my head for a little while regarding a project I'll hopefully get around to starting next year um, that's very cult-heavy and trying to give a different spin on on cults yeah i think they should have that human angle presented a lot more all too often it is the case of yay guy in a robe with big knife or a tommy gun or stabbing someone on an altar they become very formulaic and very cookie cutter after a while it's like you can't really distinguish the cult of one god to the cult of another one they all do the same thing so yeah it'd be nice to have a bit more diversity and that human face applied for what's evidently under the hood somewhere yeah it is a bit white hat black hat it can be so I think bringing more subtlety in and I think considering what an actual religion would be is an interesting starting point. And certainly for me, I like using human antagonists in Call of Cthulhu scenarios. Monsters are very cool. I mean, monsters are what make Call of Cthulhu Call of Cthulhu. But at the same time, you know, the majority of interactions with monsters are combat or screaming and running away or big sand losses. And you don't tend to have the more subtle interactions with them, or at least not very often. And you get this with the human antagonists. And by making them more textured, by yeah, getting the players to understand maybe to some extent where they're coming from or how they got like that, you know, it does make them feel less like disposable mooks. I remember there was a comic published years ago, uh, one of the issues of The Invisibles by Grant Morrison, where I, I think the same idea ended up being used in one of the Austin Powers films. There is an entire ep issue of the comic that is given over to giving the backstory of uh, one of the faceless security guards that one of the heroes kills in the previous uh, issue. And it's just suddenly, you know, sort of giving his family life and putting a human face on him and sort of explaining how he got involved with being part of this evil conspiracy that... Um, the, the heroes ended up uh, fighting against. And it struck me as being one of the most moving things that I'd read in comics in that stage. The idea of bringing something similar to Call of Cthulhu and you know, making you, you know, maybe not entirely sympathise, but at least empathise to some extent with these cultists as human beings. Yeah, I think that makes for a much more interesting game. 
It's also the one thing that really helps at the game table. Instead of depicting a conversation with a monster and the investigators, you don't have to put on a menacing voice that doesn't hurt your throat for as long. <laughs> it's like I can only speak as a deep one for so long before my throat really, really hurts. Well, that brings our sermon to a close. So it's a yeah for Targon, praise Cthulhu from me. It's an ecumenical cheerio from me. And it's a long wait while I think of something important to say from me. <laughs> <laughs> I think we just leave that. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Yeah, just cut to, cut to silence. <laughs> Blasphemous Tomes.com mm-hmm.